Welcome to Less Than or Equal, the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse in their accomplishments. I'm your host, Aline Sims, and today I'm joined by Megan Condis. Megan, welcome. How are you? I'm good. Thank you very much. How are you? Good. I'm wonderful. Megan, who are you? Uh, Well, I am an assistant professor in English at Stephen F. Austin State University down in Texas, and I am an academic who works on gender performance in gaming culture and also a sort of budding amateur game designer. So academia, how did you decide to get started in that or is that just kind of where where the wind blew you? Well, I always knew that I wanted to be a teacher of some kind. I have teachers in my family. Uh, and when I got to college as like an undergraduate, I just thought, uh, yeah, this is kind of the place that I want to be, be around young people and have access to, you know, the library and all the awesome resources and all the awesome people that you get access to when you're on a college campus. So I decided to make that my goal. And I ended up in English, I would say, looking back, you know, it's it's probably my work is probably more like one foot in an English department, one foot in a communications or even like a gender women studies department. Mm-hmm. But I I found a good home in English and I had a lot of people who supported my project, even though it wasn't on a you know traditional literary topic. So I was very lucky. So that's that's really interesting. Um, how how did that happen? <laughs> Well, I just, um, I kind of created a committee around myself who was willing to walk down the road of looking at digital text with me. Uh, For example, one person I was very lucky to be able to work with uh, was Dr. Lisa Nakamura, who she's at the University of Michigan now, uh, but she was working at the University of Illinois when I went there as an undergrad. And she uh, is very talented, very well-known, well-regarded scholar of race in digital culture. So I had some advocates who were willing to kind of wade into strange places like, oh, instead of close reading a poem or a novel, you're going to close read Twitter or you're going to close read a video game. Well, okay, let's just see where it goes. And luckily, the people that I surrounded myself with saw some merit or at least willing to let me fumble through the project that I had chosen. So. Oh, interesting. Um, and I know that, that, um, kind of those, those themes of diversity, um, weave their way in through, uh, your, like your current online presence, um, on Twitter. Um, mm-hmm. for example, I know that, um, today, uh, there was some controversy over the masculinity so fragile hashtag Mm -hmm. uh you want to talk about that a little bit uh well i mean there's there's controversy every day on twitter that's why we love it right but um so masculinity so fragile is so let me give you my reading of it i read it as a hashtag about how the construct of masculinity is so brittle and so fragile that the actual living men who wind up getting tangled up in it end up getting, I guess, cut on its jagged edges, right? So I read it as a very um, a very understanding hashtag or a hashtag that's supposed to be about uh, showing how patriarchy hurts men too, if you ever heard that phrase get passed around online, right? Like it's supposed to be a sort of feminist outreach to say, you know, we understand that men have issues and they they sometimes have it rough having to deal with the, the constructs that they're expected to enact. But it seems as though there is a, a big misunderstanding on Twitter where people are taking the hashtag as sort of an attack on men, as though the hashtag was men so fragile, right? Mm. As if the actual people were broken as opposed to the construct that you know people are engaging with. Uh, and in fact, I, I find that the same, the same misunderstanding seems to be taking place in a lot of the big like geek culture versus social justice warrior clashes that are happening on Twitter, like in 
you know, all the Gamergate stuff and the Game So White stuff. And uh, actually, so today there was, there's this company called Direct to Drive, which is like a, like a kind of a Steam type service. Like you get DRM free games you can download on there. And they just put forth this like marketing thing on Twitter that uh, says like, this is trigger warning week. So you can come do a sale on our website and we're calling it trigger warning week uh, in, in honor of diverse and empowering titles. And then you click through and you see the titles that are on sale. They're like Duke Nukem and Hitman and like mm. all these things that were, that have been called out in the past for being sort of like anti-feminist or disdainful. And so I go on Twitter and I say, you know, I think this is, you know, I, I'm so I'm sort of rolling my eyes at you. I think I said like I am contemptuous of this. I'm not offended because that everyone's going to say, "Oh, you're so sensitive. You get offended." But I am sort of scoffing at this because to me, it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what trigger warnings are and are and what they're for. And so I ended up getting into kind of a back and forth with some folks in Gamergate on Twitter about it, and you know, some of them were just the typical like, "Yeah, we're just going to like." throw abuse at you but a couple of them actually ended up getting into really interesting and really productive discussions about it i think because we actually took the time to define our terms and so once we came to realize what the other was talking about when they used the word trigger warning or what you know the other person's talking about when they use the hashtag masculinity is so fragile once you understand what the other person means by that construct then you can have a more productive discussion that doesn't devolve into insults. But I think, I mean, I think what happens is that Twitter has such a small amount of space for people to be able to write in that we all sort of boil down everything to these sort of essentials or these like coy or not coy is not the right word, um, like snappy ways of putting things. Uh And to us, we're like, oh, yeah, that's basically what I mean. Like, there's some nuance behind it, but I understand what I'm talking about. And all the people who are in the same circles as me and use the same vocabulary understand what I'm talking about. But then someone else reads that and they don't have, like, the apparatus of feminist theory or they don't have, like, so I'm a college educator, so I talk about offering trigger warnings and what types of policies we should be setting about those and faculty meetings all the time. But if you're not running in those circles, you see something like a trigger warning and you might think, well, that's silly. Like that's people shouldn't be able to just never have to hear about anything that offends them. And, you know, if someone else comes in and says, actually, that's not what they are. That's not what they're for. Then now we can actually start talking to each other. Um, So uh, to me, that's, that's my goal as an academic and that's why I try to have a presence on Twitter and and on the web in general is I want to not just be able to like go into feminist spaces and kind of snicker at, Oh, like Gamergate, they're a bunch of jerks, but I'd I'd like to actually go out there and, and start to talk with people who are willing to talk. I know there's trolls out there who aren't really willing to talk, but there are a lot of people out there who really are, they, they want to talk to someone about these big, important issues. Like they're, so these are like people I would love to have as my students. They're young people. They're interested in questions about freedom of speech. They're interested in questions about the best way to foster a learning community. As, a, as an academic, I'm like, yes, let's please, let's talk about that. Yeah, it's interesting that you're, you're willing to have those conversations because I think that a lot of people aren't anymore, um, you know, that... Uh, that we kind of tried in the beginning as all of this was going down and as it just kind of as Gamergate became like this more drawn out, prolonged, protracted thing, we just kind of stepped back and said, you know what, like, I, I can't do this anymore. And um, and I'm glad to hear that there are still constructive conversations happening in, you know, even in the confines of that space. Well, I, I definitely think that people people should do what they feel willing to do and like there's definitely no like you aren't doing your duty unless you serve in the gamergate trenches and talk to (laughs) like here's your quota of people you have to talk to today like i definitely don't think that but i guess i feel like how do i want to say this 
I feel like if, if someone is talking to me and not just unloading a bunch of slurs or not just, um, I don't know, like, it, like if they're actually talking and it's not just a 17 hashtags strung together or like right. a talking point that they obviously copied and pasted. It seems constructive. It, at least it seems like it's trending in that direction. And I've definitely started to go down this road a couple of times and then realized, oh, I just, I've been baited. Like they just wanted to get me talking to them and now they're going to try to waste my time. And, you know, that's fine. I, I can cut bait then. Right. And, and, you know, I kind of feel like on Twitter, this is, I'm volunteering my time and mm-hmm. I, I like to talk to people, but you know, in the classroom, I'm not allowed to just, you know, and I wouldn't want to uh, just go to a student and be like, yeah, you, you're just not going to get this. Like, I'm just writing you off. But on Twitter, like no one's paying me to be on Twitter and no one is, um, no one is going to be your sort of mental health support on Twitter, right? Like right. it's sort of a dog eat dog world. So if I, if I get the sense that people are just trying to bait or they're trying to like draw attention to you so that a bunch of people are going to pile on, then, you know, I'll disengage. But every once in a while you, you get someone who actually, you know, I, I guess they just believe the whole ethics and journalism thing, or they, you know, they just really, they, they feel like they are being accused of, of doing something wrong because they like games and they don't understand like, why people would just immediately write them off just because they have gamer in their Twitter, Twitter profile. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that that's the kind of person that I do sort of want to say like, okay, you know, let me show you some things that I've been sent. Let me talk to you a little bit about, you know, these sort of basics of feminist terminology, like what we're talking about when we say masculinity is so fragile. And then you know, maybe you can be the judge and say, you know, can you understand why this is hard for people to to talk about? And, you know, can you, can you think about how you approach people so that you don't sort of automatically set off their hackles and make them clam up and, and protect themselves? And, you know, the same thing goes for me. Like I, I've been guilty sometimes of seeing someone, you know, post on a hashtag or post a sort of frustrated reaction to a certain work of criticism and, and then had that reaction of like, Oh man, they're on, they're on the other team. Mm. And like, I have to defend the person that's on my team. And you know, I have to step back and remind myself, no, that's, that's not how productive discourse is supposed to work. So, you know, I need to kind of back down and really reread what they said and really think about, are they, are they really asking a question? Are they trying to, provoke a reaction are they are they here because they've been summoned by like sometimes you use a certain term or certain hashtag and people like pop up like genies out of the woodwork and you're like oh i summoned i summoned gamergate and now they're all here how did that happen yeah like is that what's going on or is it more like because i've had people who just you know and i end up talking with them for a while and then they say well i just sort of stumbled upon your work somewhere like on some website that you've written for or I stumbled upon your game on um, itch.io or something like that and so they really did show up out of curiosity and I would hate to just tell that person like oh obviously you're just a misogynist and a troll like screw off because you know then that person is gonna come to the conclusion oh you know those feminists really do just hate men or they really do just hate gaming and want it to be shut down and I mean, for me, I've been a gamer since I was a little kid. So that's the furthest from the truth. I want, I want gaming to be as, as big and as open and as socially acceptable a practice as, as anything. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that maybe people don't realize is kind of gaming's always been stigmatized. Mm-hmm. And I think I, I kind of get the feeling that, uh, some younger people involved with Gamergate don't really get that all the time. Like, like I'm not saying it's okay, but that's how it's been. And one of the things that that shows like this and unconsolable and, and spawn on me and 
you know, a, a ton of others are trying to do, um, you know, and I'm not a, this less than or equals in a gaming podcast, but definitely we talk to, to a lot of game developers and game designers and gamers, and mm-hmm. we're just trying to make it, we're trying to make it a bigger space. We're trying to make it so that there's more for everybody. And we're not trying to shut down your games. We're just trying to make sure that if you have, my example is always Grand Theft Auto Five because it's mm-hmm. awful. Parts of it are <laughs> awful anyway. I know Maybe not as a whole, but um, <laughs> because it's the worst. Because it's the worst, um, <laughs> you know. But you've got like Grand Theft Auto Five, and I don't want that to not exist. I just want to have something else I can play if I'm not interested in that. Right. And I've, I mean, so and that's interesting that you bring that up because so talking about stigmatized spaces, that also makes me think, you know, so fandom of like sci-fi and comic books used to also be way more stigmatized than it is now. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, I remember being in grade school and, you know, being really into star Wars and people would just be like, ugh, like star Wars. And, you know, now all the little kids love star Wars and they all have their, uh, like star Wars cartoons and their, uh, like, we're having the new movies that are coming out and people are unboxing the toys and it's all amazing. Right. But like, you know, you can sort of think back and think, Oh, I remember a time when like, if you were sitting around writing fan fiction for these properties, or if you were, if you knew who a superhero other than like Superman or Batman was, that was weird. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and you were weird and there wasn't Mm -hmm. any way to, to bond over you know i was i was picked on a lot for liking star trek um Mm -hmm. you know and now now you can go online and you can write your fan fiction and people will like it and it's amazing instead of it like sitting in a notebook sad and lonely and honestly i think in terms of like you know stigma so like people in in gamergate say oh like gamers are being like maligned by the mainstream media and things like that but I mean, gaming is a huge industry still. Like at least game gamers get attention and they get like feted by these big corporations who want to like please them and make products that please them. You look into other like more niche fandoms and they're just out there on their own or sometimes even being actively combated by corporations, like people coming in and wanting to shut down fan fiction sites or like assert copyright and things like that. So, yeah. And you look at things like Penny Arcade Expo and how Mm -hmm. huge PAX is. I mean, PAX is massive um, and it's in multiple locations. And, you know, I, I understand how gaming can feel, um, feel isolating and feel um, still stigmatized, but really it's it's more and more mainstream every day and i mean how many how many kids get wii's and mm-hmm. um 3ds's or yeah and um i mean there's there's definitely space for it it's it's not ubiquitous i guess and and that can feel lonely yeah i don't know i guess like the thing that gets me is i just think okay so i remember you know being a geek in like the late 80s early 90s like at a time when you know like geek and nerd like you remember the movie revenge of the nerds Mm -hmm. like that that was not like a portrayal that you know was complimentary yeah well i mean it sort of was in the sense that they were the heroes of the movie but it also wasn't like yeah that's what i want to grow up to be like you sort of were happy for them because they won the day but you're also like yeah i don't know if i want to like date someone or I don't know if I want to be in that the girls sorority in that movie where they're like all the the least attractive people or whatever like it was there was definitely pros and cons to the identity let's say it like that right like you had geek pride but you also recognize like that that was a counter culture because you weren't being recognized by the mainstream culture and so I get that feeling that a lot of gamers have today when they feel like, you know, within our circle, we can be proud of our accomplishments and we can you know, show off our gamer score and we can, 
you know, use our skills to win renown in this subculture, but then we still have like our parents don't understand, or like maybe our friends who do sports or other things like don't understand our hobby. So, so I get that. But then I just want to talk to those same people and be like, now imagine that you're in that space that like non-mainstream space. And within that space, you're the one who's different, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're the woman or you're the person of color or you're the queer kid. And so you're like, you're the odd one out inside the group that's made up of the odd ones out. And that's, that's the thing that, that I really wish I could get people to understand is it's, it's not that people are saying, you know, games are bad and so we need to get rid of it. It's more that people are saying games are supposed to be the space where you can let your freak flag, flag fry, freak flag Fly. Fly. It's hard to say. It is hard to say. Um, your fan fiction flag can fly or like whatever it is, like let, let your geekiness show. And then, so you go there and you're like, ah, oh, at last my oasis, right? Like all those people out there that don't get my hobbies. Now this is my space. And then you show up and people are asking you to show your t- or GTFO or people are calling you like, I don't know, like, probably don't want to use curse words in our podcast, but like, you know, calling you the F word for gay people, calling you racial slurs. And you just think this was supposed to be the place where I was welcome. Right. And not even just also safe. Yeah. And I guess that goes, that circles back to the the trigger warning discussion, right? Is that the, the, this idea that, well, you know, no one should be able to, no one should expect to be safe all the time. Like there's the real world is a harsh place and you can't always expect to be safe. You know, that's, that's probably true. You, you can't, you can't demand or be entitled to a safe space, but isn't that something we should strive towards? Isn't that a thing that we value? Don't we want to create a better world? Wouldn't we like to say, well, yeah, the rest of the world out there is crappy and it will stomp on people and doesn't care how you feel but here amongst your friends and the people who share your interests we care about how you feel and we want to make sure that you are welcome to participate like to me that seems like pretty obvious but but again I guess that comes from you know having that experience of seeking out the oasis and finding it wasn't for me. So I suppose there might be people out there who found their oasis in geek culture and they maybe are a little afraid for it to change because if it changes, it might not be safe for them anymore. This was the only space where they used to feel safe from the quote unquote mainstream, right? So if someone comes in and says, you know, I want to shake this up or I want to, I want to be, you know, included, especially for women, I think when women say we want to come into these geeky circles, there's this sense of, oh, does that mean I'm going to have to perhaps face rejection again? Does that mean I'm going to have to worry about, you know, getting called a nerd or feeling emasculated again? Because the reason I came to to geekdom is so that I could escape that. Mm -hmm. And I just want to kind of reassure those people that, again, that's not what this is about. This is not about turning geek culture into the mainstream. It's about allowing more people to be welcomed as fellow weirdos, I guess, or fellow nerds or fellow geeks. Yeah. Um, so we haven't talked a lot on the show about trigger warnings. Um, mm-hmm. Will you explain what those are so that the listeners know? Yeah. Okay. So trigger warnings are notices that come ahead of content that might be uh also triggering to people with PTSD. So that might be like veterans or survivors of assault or things like that. And by triggering, that means it triggers an anxiety attack. So not just, oh, I don't like that, or it makes me feel icky, but actually like, oh, when I'm faced with this content, like this discussion of violence or this discussion of rape or this, you know, vivid depiction of battle or something like that, you know, my body has a reaction. So like if, you know, the easiest way to remember this or, or to think about it is, that, you know, we have veterans who are coming back from overseas from the war in Iraq. And if you've ever known one of those folks and they, you've been around them when they hear like a loud bang and you'll see them like have, they might have a reaction to that. That's not just, oh, that startled me, but is, you know, my body 
put me back into that fight or flight mode because I've been through an experience where a loud bang might mean a, my friend got killed. Right. Same thing for like survivors of assault, right? So if you're discussing, you no know, graphic sexual assault, their body might take them back to that point in time and put them into that, you know, survival fight or flight response because that's something that happened to them. So the purpose of a trigger warning is to let people know that that type of content is coming, not so that they can just leave and never come back, but so that they can kind of prepare themselves so that they don't get surprised by a negative reaction. And so particularly in schools, like uh, if you have a literature class and you're reading a book that has like, I mean, there's lots of classic literature out there that has terrible, horrific content in it. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't teach that literature, that we shouldn't engage with those subjects, but maybe we should be uh, sensitive to preparing students so that they at least know it's coming, right? Like, so today in class, we're going to be talking or probably ideally it would be like tomorrow in class, right? So that people have some time. But so tomorrow in class, we're going to be discussing this topic. So I wanted to let you know so that you could sort of sort through your feelings about it and get ready. Now, I think what a lot of people believe is that the purpose of that trigger warnings serve in the classroom is to get people out of work. Like, oh, I am triggered by discussions of X. And so therefore I should get excused from reading this work or from doing this assignment or what have you. I mean, I guess just like any policy, like there's always going to be students who try to take advantage of a policy and see if it can get them out of work. Right. I mean, they're like people try to use late work policies to get out of work. People try to use, oh, you know, my grandmother died for the 17th time this semester to get out of work. Like, you know, people are going to take advantage of well-meaning policies if they're people who are the type to take advantage of things. Right. Like, so I'm not saying it's a perfect system, but I am saying the people who administer the systems or the professors that are invested in using trigger warnings are not doing it because they want people to be coddled or they want people to never have to face something offensive. It's actually just the opposite. They want people to be able to actively think through things that might be considered offensive rather than just freezing in their seats and being unable to engage because they're too busy trying to breathe while they have a panic attack. Right. Um, and so, again, I think that what's happening is uh, this is a term that if you're not in these academic circles where people are talking about like trigger warning policies and like, should we uh, have like resources for students to use, you hear like trigger warning X, Y, Z content and you think, what? So then I, I can just say I'm triggered and I don't want to do it. Well, that's dumb. And yeah, that would be dumb if that's how it works. because then it would be massively taken advantage of. But that's not actually the reason why those policies get instituted. It's actually about generating discussion. And if I can drop a quick citation. So, um, uh, so the title of the video is, What's the Deal with Classroom Trigger Warnings on the Idea Channel? That's what it's called, P Ooh, PBS's Idea Channel. Okay. Uh, so they, they have a video there that kind of talks through this same debate and talks about um, what are some reasons for and against instituting those policies? So, you know, if that's a subject that's interesting to you, then you know, go check it out. Um, but what happened today in terms of sort of geek culture related to trigger warnings is trigger warnings is one of those terms like SJWs and like, um, oh, I don't even know what else. Like, uh, I don't know. It's, it's just one of those buzzwords that gets thrown around by Gamergate as a way that you can signal that someone is just too delicate for the world and they're offended by everything. And, you know, they shouldn't, they should just not get on the internet if they can't handle people disagreeing with them. Right. Right. And so when this company made the sale called the trigger warning sale and used it to promote content that has been kind of discussed as offensive, right? Again, not that feminists are trying to ban it, but just feminists have said, hey, there's some like sketchy stuff going on in these games. I actually think Grand Theft Auto V was one of them, by the way. The um, game that's, wouldn't that's surprise the worst. me. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Duke, the new Duke Nukem is one of them. And uh, like the new Tomb Raider where like there's the cutscene where Lara gets threatened with sexual assault. So it's like the, the sort of joke, quote unquote, is trigger warning all these games are the things that the delicate flowers can't handle right it incensed me because it 
takes a concept that's actually designed to help people be able to grapple with really difficult topics and turns it into a way of mocking them, right? Like it, it just suddenly becomes like, oh, poor baby, you can't even play like fictional versions of violent things or you can't even hear someone mention a word on on Twitter or on Facebook. Well, how are you going to get along in the real world? So that it it made me angry thinking mm-hmm. that just because you aren't interested enough to actually learn what this term is and what it means, that you're willing to just brush off and dismiss the people that use it, yeah. particularly veterans. Like, so I, it's, I don't want to say, it, it interests me, I guess, that, um, you know, people are very dismissive of PTSD when it comes to like sexual assault or like domestic violence. But as a culture, we're a lot more supportive of veterans who have PTSD, and they also have been advocates for the use of trigger warnings. So, no, not to put you know too fine a point on it, but you know, the the types of people that they're making fun of, they think they're just making fun of these like people who live on Tumblr and they're these emo kids who have never experienced anything real that's not actually the case some of the people that they're making fun of have experienced some extremely traumatizing situations and they're still trying to deal with the after effects today and i think that also you know not just the the emo tumblr kids but you know domestic violence gets kind of this um glossing over you know Mm -hmm. is how how is that a traumatic thing um and people, you know, women especially, because women tend to be victims of domestic violence more than men, you know, mm-hmm. well, why did she stay in that situation? Um, why didn't she just get out? Like, it's it's a super easy thing to do. And then, you know, once once you get out, you know, it's you're just supposed to get over it um, mm-hmm. when it's it's really not like that at all it's a very very difficult traumatic thing yeah definitely and i and don't get me wrong like i i love emo tumblr kids like you know i'm a little too old to be an emo tumblr kid but i was like an emo aol instant messenger kid yeah back I, in the day, if anyone remembers what that is I, I definitely would have been an emo tumblr kid so so you know i'm, I'm not saying that that's like not a a real experience. And, and I actually think um, it's very interesting because so spaces like certain corners of Tumblr and certain feminist spaces are the places where some of these ideas started to uh, gain traction, mm-hmm. I guess, because not because they're spaces where all the people who visit them are just too delicate and fragile to live, but because these were spaces where people were actively working together to create a community that was a little bit better than the one that they could find in the real world and meet space, right? Mm -hmm. Where these people got together and they said, you know, if we're going to own this website and this forum and and all live here together and moderate it ourselves, or if we're all going to gather on this one spot or this, you know, network of spots on Tumblr, why shouldn't we collaborate together to make it easier on all of us? Like, so again, it's not about, if I don't have this, I'll just melt. But it's more about if you have the space and you and you control the space enough to extend that courtesy to other people, why wouldn't you? Yeah. And in my classroom, I have the power to determine the shape of the community of my students. And if I can extend some you know, courtesy or some thoughtfulness to experiences that they may or may not be bringing with them into the classroom, why wouldn't I? It's just courtesy. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's just like, oh. Have you seen the thing? It's like a Google Chrome extension that replaces the term politically correct with like common decency or something like that. Yes. So that when you yeah. read accounts of people complaining about it, it's like this common decency is running amok. And you just think, what? Right. <laughs> but it, it really does to me. It encapsulates that that same idea, right? Like, OK, so, yeah, I guess you shouldn't have to use like inclusive language when you're talking about people, but why would you want, why would you want to be a jerk about it? 
Yep. That's exactly how I feel about ableist language, um, which mm-hmm. I still have in my vocabulary. I'm I'm slowly working on it. Um, but that's that's the thing. Of all the things I advocate for, I get the most pushback on not using ableist language. And mm-hmm. people are like, well, why? You know, why why can't I say uh, uh crazy's the one that um that I use. So why can't why can't I say crazy? Well, it's kind of contributing to the stigma of the way people with mental illness are thought of and treated in our country. And, you know, I don't I don't want to contribute to that. And mm-hmm. um, it's really easy. There are there are some pretty amazing words in the English language that I can learn and expand my vocabulary and find things to say other than crazy. It doesn't mm-hmm. hurt me and it helps other people. So why wouldn't I want to do that? Right. And and I think that's it, is that it requires work. And that's why. Yeah. And it does. So Pete, you'll and like my favorite argument is when people will be like, oh, what now this one? Like first I couldn't say, I don't know, racial slurs. And then I couldn't call women bitches. And now I can't say crazy. Like what's next? And you just think again, like, so are you saying that that's like your secret wish? Like you really wish you could go back to the good old days when you could be super rude like I just don't know what the appeal is um but then I but then I think and I realize okay well the appeal is when you have these frustrated feelings you don't want to have to take a time out from your own feelings to think about well I don't want to use you know I don't want to use these like slurs or these words that implicate a whole class because blah 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 because you're mad right right and so rather than taking the second to well I mean let's not trivialize it, I guess. Like it is, you know, rather than taking the moment to put your own feelings aside for a second and to kind of sift through what is going to contribute to like the global discourse, right? People are just like, I don't want to have to do that. I'm pissed. I want to say that's, you know, someone's terrible. And so I'm just going to say this terrible thing. And, and I understand that in the moment. What I don't understand is people who then make that their cause where they're like, and now I'm going to advocate and say that my right and my desire to use these rude words whenever I want is more important than anything else. It's like, you should be able to say, and that's where, like, when you say, I I think it's very brave and very important that you say, you know, this is something that I'm working on, right? Like that you, you're not just like, I was born never thinking offensive things. And so if you have ever used a word like this, then obviously I'm superior to you. Like, um, that, that kind of attitude, I think, is one that exacerbates problems mm-hmm. uh, with, quote unquote, social justice warriors, is that perception that, you know, obviously you're of lesser moral stuff if you ever use those terms. But if you are, again, if you're interested in building a community, I think one of the things that you should be willing to work towards is how that community what what types of discourse that community engages in and whether you participate in them. yep i totally agree and i i think you're totally right also to say like ableism is one that's hard because there's so many that people don't even realize are ableist words like things that you look back at their origins and then you like so the one that pops into my head is like imbecile, right? Like it to many people that just sounds like this, it's like an old fashioned way or, or idiot even. Like right. these are just sort of old fashioned ways of saying that someone's being annoying or someone's um, Not making bad choices or whatever. Yeah. yeah. And then you actually go back and look and you're like, oh no, this was like clinical language that was used to diagnose people. Like, I don't know. It's, it's wild when you look, when you look back at the language and you see, you know, some things we we as a culture have learned to reject, like sort of racialized language and gendered language and more recently like homophobic language, but ableist language and, and also like sort of fat shaming language. Mm-hmm. All of those are so ingrained in our vocabulary that most of the time we don't even realize we're slurring a group. We just think we're, you know, saying the equivalent of like, you're not. Right. Yeah, I think that um Ableist language, transphobia, I think um, things mm-hmm. surrounding transphobia is still very prominent. And I do also think that fat shaming is uh, are three of the, the big 
um, like next steps culturally um, mm-hmm. that we're going to have to tackle. Not that we've done such a great job at tackling other issues. Um, I think we've kind of uh, hidden them under the rug more than anything. Um, but but eventually we're going to have to go there, I think. Um, yeah. We have other things and to at deal least, with. But... At least our culture recognizes that those are issues, right? Yeah. Like, uh, for things like transphobia and ableism, I think people just think that's the way things are. Right. Like in the same way that, you know, however many years ago people would say, you know, yes, races that are not white are just evolutionarily not as good. Like that's just the way things are. We can't help it. You know, I think people have this, a similar like sort of biological naturalist view that says, yes, people with disabilities, people with mental health issues, like obviously they're, they're just broken. And that's something that, again, they think is just natural. But the reason they think it's natural is because our vocabulary is so geared towards stigmatizing those things that they don't right. even have another, co- another model that they can look at it through. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a difficulty that, that I have noticed, um, through the course of doing this show is that the language surrounding how to talk about these issues is still shifting. And Mm -hmm. so, so it's, and, and a lot of it doesn't exist yet. And so it can be really difficult to communicate because, um, especially for, you know, the people like me on transgender issues, like I try to be a good advocate, but that is not a community that I, um, that I am always in. I have, I have many transgender friends, um, and I'm, I'm very lucky to know them. And I am, I'm so extremely fortunate that they choose to educate me when I get things wrong because they Mm -hmm. definitely don't have to. But if you're not in the community all of the time um, to some extent, it, it's hard to talk about. Um, and, and when you're someone like me, who's like, has a toe in the water and I'm trying to, um, trying to educate the people who are like 500 yards away, um, who are in the desert, who are, yeah. yeah, who, who have no water, who don't remember what water is. Um, it it gets a little bit difficult because I try, you know, I use a word like cisgender and they're like, well, what does that mean? And, um, and it's, it's, it's extremely hard. And, um, it, it makes me realize how important language is, you know, without language, we have hardly any communication. And again, I think, I think that's where a lot of the resistance comes from is people who say, oh, well, I want to have an opinion on this thing, but I don't have that vocabulary, that theoretical apparatus to to have the conversation about it, but it all it feels so good to have an opinion. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to have the opinion that re- doesn't require me to learn any new stuff, mm-hmm. right? Because th- one, that's the opinion that feels like it has the weight of quote unquote common sense or or like social proof to it, right? Because you you look around and the rest of the way that society is set up seems to be pointing towards that conclusion is correct. So you can you feel good about that. But also just that if people are asking me to to do all this learning and to to do all this listening in order to participate in the conversation, then that's just that seems like such a burden, right? And it just seems like such a bummer. Like and I guess I don't know how I feel about that because I don't want to say like, so oppressed people, make sure you put a happy sunshine face on right. it when you educate, because that's not their job either. Or, or, you know, as a feminist, it's not my job to, you know, take everyone by the hand and be like, the things your sexist, you know, grandpa always said about what feminists are like is not true. Like, right. you know, sometimes that's not your job, but, you know. And, and again, as an educator, that just makes me think like, okay, so that is part of my job in that role. Not, you know, just as like a citizen or as a woman, it's not my job to, to teach everyone who comes to me, just like it's not like every random black person to explain to their friends like X, Y, and Z, right? 
But as a person who did sign up for a job to be an educator, you know, I, it's important to me that I spend time in my class talking about those issues because sometimes, especially like since I am, I'm an English teacher, I, but I get a lot of students, I teach like writing classes and technical writing and web design and stuff. And I get students in my classes who maybe this is the only English class they're going to take in college because they're engineers or they're, you know, I, at the college that I, that I teach at right now, we have a huge forestry department, right? So, you know, they're going to have one sort of smattering of studying language as a concept, everything from how to write a sentence up to how to interpret the things that you read. And so I, I do see it as part of my duty as an educator to get in there and say, okay, so if we're going to study language, here are some things that that language does to you. Like here's some ways that language affects you and your thinking, not just here's the right place to put a comma or like, here's how you write a business letter. Right. And those things are important. And I definitely teach those things in case Thank my you. chair is li- <laughs> in case my department head is listening to this. Like we totally went over business letters this week, but we also talk about when you're addressing your business letter, you know, make sure you don't, address all the men as Mr. And then all the women by their first name, Mm -hmm. which I see a lot. And I, you know, and I asked my class, like, well, why, why do you think that I warn you not to do that? And they think about it. And then they realize like, oh, like I was just thinking of these people, like one of them in an authoritative context and one of them in, in a friendly context. And it never occurred to me that the titles that I use or don't use are important. And then, you know, so even in those situations where you're just talking about like little tiny bits of um, like how to write an email, how to write a memo, like those are still opportunities where we can get in these little spots where they can start thinking about language as a social construct. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, you said technical writing and I was like, yes, because that's what I do. Um, I'm a technical writer. Um, nice. And I think that every every engineer should have to take at least one technical writing class, but that's that's neither here nor there. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I, I think that I think it's excellent that you incorporate that because I so often say like if you scroll like I have like 20,000 tweets, if you scroll through those, I am sure at least a dozen times you're going to see something in there about me talking about how important the words we use are, how Mm -hmm. important a specific word can be, and um, how we have to think about what we say. And that doesn't mean like you have to sit and stress about every word that comes out of your mouth. But you know, just having a general awareness of the implications of the way we think about things and the way we therefore phrase things is huge. Definitely. Um, and I mean, so, you know, when it comes to language of objects, we think, oh, of course, our description should be accurate. Like if you said centimeters, but you really meant inches, then your description is going to be way off, right? And so we all think, yes, of course, you should be precise about objects. But then we're so cavalier about how we talk about people. Mm -hmm. And we're especially like with with issues of like transphobia, where we just feel we like, not you and I, but like we as a culture, right? Like this is a problem that we as a culture deal with. Sometimes we feel such license to misgender people just because we don't feel like bothering to ask them how they would prefer to be gendered or because there's someone in the public eye and we're, you know, trying to make mock of them or, or something. Right. And if they were, you know, a house, we would jump right in and say, no, it's actually this many square feet, not that many square feet, or it's actually brick and it's not hardwood or whatever it happens to be. But when it's a person, we just shrug our shoulders and say, you know, oh, whatever, like it's close enough or, you know, if they don't like it, then they don't have to listen to me or anything like that. And I find that strange. Yeah, I do too. Very much. Um, and again, for me, it just boils down to basic respect. Like, mm-hmm. why wouldn't I? I believe you when you tell me what your name is. I believe you, you know, when you tell me what your career is. Why wouldn't I believe you when you tell me what your gender is or isn't? Like, I mm-hmm. I don't understand. To me, it's just like a basic of course, you know better than I do. Right. I don't know. Yeah, that that one, I'm not sure. Yeah. 
Well, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. We have about 10 minutes left and um, talk about your game or the games you have planned. So you want to tell, tell us about that a little bit? Yeah. So my first game project, uh, it's called night of the living memes and it's just sort of a funny little, uh, parody of a horror game that I created, uh, based on my dissertation research. So it's about, again, how this fits in so perfect. It's about how, you know, language or specifically like internet memes can come to instill groupthink because they are uniform in uh, subject matter and they're uniform in style. And so they can sort of encourage people to think in a uniform direction. And so it sort of takes that idea and turns it into a funny little zombie story where people have to go through and try to uh, inoculate their friends against being taken over by this meme. Um, So it's just a goofy little game and it's, it's free to download on itch.io or on my website, which I'll share later. Okay. Um, So there's that. And then right now I'm working on two games. Uh, One is a dating sim style game. So like a sort of branching narrative style game Mm -hmm. about uh, consent and respect. So um, a lot of those types of games are about, if you can just make the perfect set of choices and have the perfect set of stats, then the girl of your dreams won't be able to help but fall for you because you, you know, pushed all the right buttons and now she's your girlfriend, right? That's like, you had the cheat code to her right. Um And so the game that I'm making is about uh, what, what that type of opinion suggests that you think of the object of your affection. Like, mm. like if, if you think that that's how people work, then do you actually think of them as fully functioning people with agency or do you just think of them as essentially robots? Mm-hmm. And like, what does that imply? So I'm working on that game right now. And then I'm also working on, uh, and this is just in sort of the planning stages, but I'm working on a game about tropes in fantasy and how, uh, women and particularly women of color uh, are subject to a whole different set of like tropes and assumptions in quote unquote classic fantasy stories and fairy tales. And so, you know, if, if one of those people happened to become self-aware to know that they were in a story and that they were being, that their situation was being manipulated because they have, they're being, run through the ringer and all these different tropes then what would happen from there uh and and that one like i say it's still kind of in the planning stages and i'm looking for some collaborators on that one to maybe make suggestions of like i can think of you know tropes as a white woman that i roll my eyes at whenever i read fantasy and science fiction but i definitely like to hear uh from some women of color who are interested in writing or in game making to talk about some of the tropes that they've noticed you know, women of color characters being mm-hmm. put through in, in fantasy and sci-fi. And uh, I, I think that, I think I would, it would be very interesting to see the different types of things that different people notice. Um, the same thing with like, uh, like I'd be very interested to hear from people, like what are the ableist tropes that you get sick of seeing in games? What are the sort of fat shaming tropes or the, homophobic or the transphobic tropes that you get sick of hearing in games because i'm sure there are there are ones that i don't realize are tropes but that someone who has that lived experience those things will jump right out at them yeah. so if you have thoughts on that subject i would definitely be interested to to pick your brain you listeners <laughs> listeners <laughs> This to me is the power of video games. And this is why I am so excited about the direction they're going in is because of of games that, you know, talk about um, tropes in fantasy and sci-fi. And I just I don't know, like I'm in awe. I'm just absolutely in awe that I live in a time where these kinds of things can exist. I don't know if that makes sense because it's like, obviously, you know, I've been alive for over 30 years. Like this thing, these have all been building my entire life. But when I really stop and hear about games creators like you talking about these ideas that they have for for games and for um, helping people 
examine themselves in society grow. Like, I think that is so exciting. Oh, that's, that's very kind. But so to, so can I address the listeners again? So listeners, we're old (laughs) and we remember a time when like we would fight with our friends over the one computer in our grade school Mm -hmm. so that we could be the one to play Oregon Trail. On the green screen. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like, I definitely get that. Like every once in a while I'll sort of sit back and be like, you know, like entire virtual worlds have blossomed and then died in my lifetime Mm -hmm. and they had like completely fleshed out cultures they had probably hundreds or maybe even thousands of pages of history that fans wrote up for them and now they're just gone and we moved on to the next one Mm -hmm. and people make new ones and i'm sure you know within the next 10 years it won't just be like people can do indie development for like like little short titles like mine but people will be like this is my indie mmo like you know me and five or six of my friends who write fan fiction we all made an mmo where we can live in the star trek universe but it's like a living breathing universe and the rest of the world is invited and that will be normal to those people that can't exist I don't, I know. I because you'd never I would come never back come to back the real out. World. Yeah. I would just yeah. yeah. And people like you and I will be like, in my day, <laughs> no one could no one knew how to you you know, make games and like I remember being a kid and telling my mom I wanted to make video games for a living and my mom was like, that's not a job. Yeah. Like it was like saying I want to be like in the NBA or something. Right. Like it was like, oh, only a few like magical, gifted, talented, lucky people get to do that. And now like my nephew plays Minecraft and it's just like, oh, I made a server in Minecraft and I built like a first person shooter. Yeah. And I just think, oh my God. Like, yeah. <laughs> you, what are you, what are their kids going to do? Yeah. Their kids are going to invent like the actual holodeck and then society will be over. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty so much, yeah. you heard it here first. The world is ending. <laughs> In 10 to 20 years. But it will be really fun. We'll have like a really fun couple of years before we all starve to death inside the holiday. <laughs> One last hurrah. I totally yep. derailed your train of thought. I apologize. No, but it's, I, I think it's like to, to, to people, to old people like us, like that, this, this thing that, you know, we, we've seen it grow from like just little bleeps and bloops on a screen into this like complete art form. I, I really do think it, it's amazing. It, it must've been like when people first like saw the early like Edison films mm-hmm. and then those same people were alive like 50 years later and watched like Hollywood action movies with casts of thousands. Like they watched like someone who watched like a, a Mui bridge like here's a horse running and it's magical because it moves and it's a still picture. And then 50 years later, they're like watching Ben-Hur right. with the chariot race and like thousands of extras. And I mean, that's kind of what people our age have gone through. And now like young people growing up just have game making tools. And when they get old, I don't even know what people have. Virtual reality, I guess, is starting now, right? That's yeah. going to be interesting. And they ha- all those kids have loud music and they're on my lawn. I shake my fist at the sky. Yeah. It's awful. Well, like what's that meme of like the grandpa, of the Simpsons, uh, old man yells at cloud. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's, that's us. Yeah. Pretty much daily. Yeah. No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, Megan, I've had such a good time talking to you, but it's, it's been about an hour. Do you have um, any final topics or thoughts? Uh, well, like I say, you know, I love, I love to chat with people. I love to hear your ideas. Um, tell me, tell me that trigger warnings are dumb. I don't know. Like, tell me, tell me whatever you want to tell me. Um, uh, but you can find me online at megancondis.wordpress.com. So that's M-E-G-A-N-C-O-N-D-I-S.wordpress.com. And on Twitter, I'm at Megan Condis because I'm boring and I couldn't come up with anything else. So come find me. Yes. And I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, (laughs) 
I was going to say all of all of the links to your stuff and things like the PBS video that'll all be in the show notes for people to find. And oh, right. um, you can find the show on Twitter at less than or equal. If you have feedback, suggestions for guests, would like to be a guest, want to uh, tell me about who you are, because I'm really curious about who my audience is. Um, I have some idea, but maybe not a full picture. Please go to less than or equal.com and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, it would be wonderful if you'd leave a review on iTunes or even just a star rating or you know, smoke signals to friends to tell them about the show. Thanks for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.